This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. Thank you for listening. One of my favorite presidents, probably my favorite president in terms of personality, maybe not in terms of policy, although honestly, I agreed with him on almost everything in terms of domestic policy, foreign policy. It's a little bit more hit and miss. But one of my favorite presidents was uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Love, love, love Theodore Roosevelt. If you go through the pantheon of the most amazing men in American history, whether you're making a list of the top five, beginning in whatever you want to begin, 1776 onward to the present day, Theodore Roosevelt absolutely needs to make the top five. I think there's a strong case that he could make number one, but look, there's a lot of other people that have made important contributions. You go into my office, you see everywhere Theodore Roosevelt, Roosevelt bobblehead dolls, You see pictures of Theodore Roosevelt. You see um, quotes from Theodore Roosevelt. In fact, now, yesterday, I wore a Theodore Roosevelt T-shirt. Today, I'm wearing a James Garfield and Chester A. Arthur T-shirt. But the uh, thank you to my friend JFK, who gave me this, by the way, this shirt. But in 1899, before Theodore Roosevelt was president, before he was vice president, he was the governor of New York. And he gave a speech called The Strenuous Life. And in that speech, he basically said, not basically, this is what he said verbatim, a life of slothful ease, a life of that peace, which springs merely from lack either of desire or of power to strive after great things, is as little worthy of a nation as of an individual. And it's a beautiful speech. And um, I got to talk to Brian Kilmeade about this speech one day because we've spent a lot of time talking about Theodore Roosevelt, both on the radio and in private. But uh, we've never discussed the strenuous life speech. And basically, he makes the case that if you're lazy, you don't exercise, the American populace are going to get fat and fall into a state of ill health. But he also makes that case for the whole country. So, That's 1899. Okay. 1960, President-elect John F. Kennedy was planning to relax in Palm Beach after the grueling 1960 election uh, with uh, Richard Nixon, where he defeated him very narrowly. I happen to believe the election was stolen, and I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. But this was one of the closest elections in American history, 1960. But at the end of November... His wife, Jackie, went into premature labor, 
And so John F. Kennedy rushed to Washington to be with her and their son, John Jr. Jackie ultimately spent two weeks recovering in the hospital. And between comforting his wife and caring for his child, the president-elect found the time to write an article for what publication? Not the New York Times, not National Review, Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated, by the way, which apparently has just fired one of their editors for this AI reporting scandal. Good for them. You should not be able to have computers write articles or host radio shows, most importantly, and pass that off as actual reporters that the public is made to believe are getting paid. Fine. So the president-elect, John F. Kennedy, found the time to write an article for Sports Illustrated. And at the request of the magazine's editors, Kennedy took to its pages to lament what the article's title dubbed The Soft American. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page right now if you want to read it. This uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. The Soft American, December of 1960. The piece is very interesting because it's very openly fat-shaming. It's trying to openly embarrass people, especially young people, for being fat. But if you read it, it's, on the one hand, very insensitive. You know, he doesn't take into account people's feelings, doesn't take into account what his remarks might say about or what his article might say about uh, people getting bullied. But it's also very prescient. And it's rooted in ideas that are continuing to rattle around the nation's um, problems today. So Kennedy wags his finger at a United States of America that, at least in his mind, is producing far too many very large, very doughy boys. So um, it was the thrust of this piece, which came 61 years after Theodore Roosevelt's piece in um, Chicago, it was very similar to Theodore Roosevelt's piece. Uh, piece. John F. Kennedy wasn't just worried about a collective lack of ambition and drive. He was worried that said ambition and drive began and ended on the couch. Here's a quote. The harsh fact of the matter is that there's also an increasingly large number of young Americans who are neglecting their bodies, whose physical fitness is not what it should be, who are getting soft. And such softness on the part of individual citizens can help to strip and destroy the vitality of a nation. So in a lot of ways, Kennedy was kind of rehashing the same things that Theodore Roosevelt was saying at the turn of the century. Theodore Roosevelt surveyed the whole planet, divvied up by rival empires, and he saw a coming clash of nations. This is 18 years before American involvement in World War I. And he worried that American men wouldn't be up for the fight. He warned Roosevelt that bolder and stronger peoples would pass us by, earning themselves, literally, domination of the world. Predictably, 
Theodore Roosevelt wasn't concerned about what he dubbed the, this is, these are quotes from him, warlike Muslims or the wild pagans of the Philippines, but rather the colonialists who would civilize them, like the English. Roosevelt was right about one thing. This clash of nations did indeed come, first with World War I and then with um, World War II. So in John F. Kennedy's case, he had this kind of similar narrative that America was going to be unprepared to fight and that um, he was diagnosing America's boys as a national security threat the same way Theodore Roosevelt did in 1899. I want to play you something else. This is from John F. Kennedy in 1962. He's now president, no longer the president-elect. At the time he delivered this speech, 4% of U.S. children were obese and another 5% were overweight, 4%. Today, 19% of children are obese and an additional 16.6% are overweight. He wanted schools to adopt mandatory and strict physical fitness programs to prevent childhood obesity and softness. Here was what uh, John F. Kennedy had to say in 1962. There is nothing, uh, I think, uh, more unfortunate than to have uh, soft, chubby, fat-looking children who go to uh, watch uh, their school play basketball every Saturday and regard that as their week's exercise. I hope that all of you will join and everybody in the United States to make sure that our children participate fully in a vigorous and adventurous life which is possible for them in this very rich country of ours. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is twofold. One, there is not a politician in America, maybe not even Donald Trump. There is not a politician in America that would as he's president, in a prepared speech, say what John F. Kennedy said there in the way that he said it. He fat shames these kids, both in the Sports Illustrated piece and in this speech. And he uses this as, and this is when the problem is not nearly as bad as it is now, he uses this as a selling point for mandatory, strict physical fitness programs. One, Do we need, and I realize this flies in the face of all sensitivity over the last 12, 13, 20 years, really, but do we need more leaders speaking like Theodore Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy used to? Is that a good thing? Or if you're a child that's overweight, do you hear the president calling you soft, chubby, and fat-looking and... That doesn't necessarily do anything for you. Now, again, I realize I don't want to oversimplify the obesity problem in this country. I happen to believe a lot of it is tied to what's in our food, including um, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, including high fructose corn syrup, including you know eating a lot of foods that are just super processed. And that was something that neither Theodore Roosevelt nor John F. Kennedy had to deal with. But that's my first question. Is this lack of leaders speaking this way has that had a detrimental impact on the nation's physical fitness that's question one and question two 
right now, we are on the precipice of serious military conflict with China, with Russia, and in the Middle East, among others, perhaps elsewhere too. But those are the three most immediate hotspots. Do you think that what Theodore Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy warned about, a lack of physical fitness, is actually hurting our national security? My view is yes. It's what the fact that the Navy is now redoing its weight requirements to allow people that are overweight to serve in the Navy, whereas they wouldn't have been able to qualify, they're doing that to meet the current recruitment goals. So uh, I think it absolutely is a national security threat. So that's my twofold question for you. Do we need more people using the kind of language that JFK did, 800-848-9222? And two, is the fact that 19% of children today are obese, is that a national security threat as Roosevelt believed it was in 1899 and John F. Kennedy believed it was in the 60s? That's the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 800-848-9222. There is nothing, uh, I think, uh, more unfortunate than to have uh, soft, chubby, fat-looking children who go to uh, watch uh, their school play basketball every Saturday and regard that as their week's exercise. I hope that all of you will join and everybody in the United States to make sure that our children participate fully in a vigorous and adventurous life which is possible for them in this very rich country of ours. Indeed. Very pleased to be heard right now on uh, Talk 1400 WOND in Atlantic City. My wife and I are scheduled to go out there on Friday um, and we're looking forward to spending the the weekend out there in preparation of New Year's Eve Eve. Hoping to finish my New Year's Eve Eve email today, and it's it's a bit shorter than last year. Not much shorter, but a bit shorter. Last year's email clocked in at about fifty seven hundred words, and um, this year's email is it's it's a bit shorter. It still needs to be proofread and have to add a few things to it. So. I am uh, looking at looking at, to get that out hopefully today. My wife, thankfully, is an experienced editor and writer. She's going to proofread this. If you're not familiar with New Year's Eve Eve, it's this big party that I throw in uh, Atlantic City every December 30th. You, uh, come at your own risk, though. Last year, we threw this party, and something like eight or nine people at least got COVID. So, <laughs> you know, come at your own power. We have a bigger space this year, so hopefully... The number of people getting COVID because of it will be diminished. 800-848-9222. Rick is in New Jersey. Hi, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Hi. Um, I'd like to mention something. I, I After I talked to you on Monday, I went under the knife. I had surgery. Oh, my. I'd like to mention quick four things that the medical profession, it, it surprised me. First of all, the time of the surgery. I went into the operating room at 7.30 a.m. And I was home by 4 p.m. And I had my gallbladder out. Well, that's that's pretty impressive. It's impressive, except, well, first of all, the tests. This is why our insurance costs so much. Our t- my tests alone were over $15,000 just to have the surgery, just to have the tests. 
never mind the surgery itself, which just blows my mind. You know, normally you had one x-ray, it went in. Now it's every test in the world. Second of all, it, the tests, when I read it, it said reviewed by computer. So the AI is already in there determining whether you're fit or not fit or whatever. There was no doctor poking me and tapping me on the chest and all that. This computer looked over the stats and said, yes, you're good or no, you're not good. And it's a little concerning to me, you know, that there's not human eyes on this thing. Well, but so far it looks like when it comes to these medical diagnostic tests that Uh it looks like the AIs actually have a better track record than the humans. Well, I, I... I'm hoping that's the case. Unfortunately, we're in the very beginning of it, so I'm, I'm afraid of a couple glitches. I would like to have both at this at this time until we're sure of that. But what really concerned me is the hysteria about opiates because of the, the opiate crisis. They won't prescribe medication for pain anymore. I mean, here I have four holes in me, like someone just stabbed me four times, and they, oh, you can take a Tylenol or ibuprofen. I don't, excuse me. I, what? And I eventually got a doctor to sign off on a couple mini Percocets. But they're just so afraid because of people that are unresponsible getting addicted. Mm-hmm. That they withhold it from people that legitimately need it for pain. And I'm not the one that's out there on the street getting the fentanyl. So, you know, take it away from those people. Start, you know, arresting those drug dealers and stuff. Don't take it away from me, who's in a hospital, just had surgery, and oh well, you might get addicted if you if we give this to you. It, it's just it's unconscionable to what people suffer like that. I was in agony for two days. And so, you know, that that was my determination of the medical profession right. as it is now. All right. Well, thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. There you go. I feel bad that Rick had surgery, but honestly, all the horror stories that I hear about the medical field, the getting out and home that quickly, it's not bad. That is not too bad. And uh, I'll also add that, um, you know, he mentioned that $15,000 price tag for that. A lot of people, and I'm not saying I subscribe to this, although I'm probably closer to this than where other people are. A lot of people believe that the fact that so many Americans have insurance is part of the reason that healthcare costs are inflated so much. Because what happens is you, because you're not paying the bill generally, I mean, again, I know there's a lot of different types of healthcare out there and I'm oversimplifying, but because you're not paying the bill, you don't necessarily care what they're charging. If it was you who was paying $15,000, you'd never pay it. You'd say, wait a minute, do I really need this? Uh, Is there there something that could be done for $8,000? But, oh, it's just the insurance company that's paying for it. Oh, well, it's covered by my insurance premiums. Well, yeah, I'll get it, sure. So the doctors and the medical, all the medical billing facilities, they overpay, they overcharge, and overbill, sometimes it's unintentional. I happen to think sometimes it's intentional. And my father, who was a health insurance executive for 30 years, he was, and I think is, adamant that these doctors overbilled intentionally because the patients didn't care. They got the treatment, and they weren't the one paying the bill. 
the insurance companies were the one getting soaked. And depending on what kind of deal the insurance company worked out with the healthcare provider, they'd maybe pay pennies on the dollar. So the the doctors have the incentive to charge as much as possible because they're not going to get the full cost of the procedure. So they just keep ramping up the the procedures. You know, it's, it's funny. My my uncle is uh, an auto body mechanic, has been for a long time. I worked in his auto body shop one summer. And the same thing goes on in the auto body field. There are a lot of, not my uncle, but there's a lot of unethical and unscrupulous people that work in auto body shops that someone comes in and they have damage that's worth $1,000, right? It's $1,000 worth to repair. But you also have to pay a deductible. No one wants to pay that deductible. So what do these auto body people do? They actually will do more damage on the car so that they can bill the insurance company $5,000 and not charge the customer the deductible. So the customer's happy. He doesn't have to pay the deductible. The guy who has the body shop is is happy because he gets to get more money. The only people that are the suckers are everybody that pays auto insurance. It's funny, and look, I'm not suggesting that we should do away with health insurance or auto insurance, not by a a long shot, but there is something to insurance fraud being pandemic. You know, my, um, I don't want to make this personal, but there's the last thing I'll say on this front, and then I want to get to your calls, uh, 800-848-9222. My Aunt Jenny, she passed away maybe maybe about 10 years ago, right around then, and um, she was... she was an interesting woman, I'll put it that way. If you're if you ever watch the Sopranos, the character of Livia Soprano very similar to my aunt Jenny. Similar. Not not identical and uh, again her 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 granddaughter Jenna and I are second cousins very very close, but well yeah, not as close as I'd like to be, whatever. So um my aunt Jenny was was poor and she was an older woman very fixed income, and she mentioned to me, this when she's in her 80s or 90s, that there was a doctor that she had, she was on Medicaid, and there was a doctor that she had that had this scam going with her where he would bill her for procedures that he wasn't doing, and he would just give her cash. So the doctor, I mean, this is totally criminal on both my aunt's part, a statute of limitations is up and she's dead, even if it wasn't, and on the part of this doctor. But this doctor would bill for procedures that were never done and just give her cash. My aunt Jenny thought it was great. Not only did she not get have to get the procedures done, but she would get paid for going to the doctor. She loved it. And I think she knew that it was wrong. But um, you wonder, that's one isolated example. You think about how pervasive that is throughout the healthcare system and throughout the car care system. It's, it's something to worry about. 800-848-9222. Robert is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, Robert. Hey, hi, Frank. Uh, getting back to JFK for a moment. You remember he always loved using that word vigor. Mm-hmm. Viga. Viga, he took uh, physical uh, strength uh, very seriously. 
they came out with the magazine, I think it was in 1961 or 62. It was called Vigor to uh, emphasize on strengthening the, the youth. You know what I mean? I do indeed, Robert. So what do you think of that kind of language? Do you think that's insensitive of John F. Kennedy to be calling America's youth soft and chubby looking? Nah, nah. Yeah, I mean, you can't pamper or baby them. You yeah. know, sometimes you got to give them a little... Uh, what's that in that movie? Why don't you grow up and be like a man? You know what I mean? From the Godfather. Yeah, you know? I've, I've seen it. You I've gotta, seen it once or twice. You have to take, have to take this seriously. Robert, you can't pamper them. I hear you, Robert. Thanks for the call. 800-848-9222. Adrian on the Upper West Side always has something interesting to say. Hi, Adrian. Hey, um, I, you know, I agree that the kids are too fat. They're too, and and there should be maybe more physical activity. But come on, you're gonna—that's not the answer for an overweight kid to say, "Oh, go run more laps." I mean, a lot of these—you talk to adults who were traumatized. They were say the the overweight kid in school who couldn't run the, you know, whatever, the 50-yard dash and all the things you had to do, or couldn't do a chin-up, or couldn't get up the rope. And that's not going to fix them, to run a few more laps. It's a multifactorial causes for obesity in kids, and a lot of it is diet. I mean, you can't look at the gym. Go to the gym, you see a lot of overweight people working out like crazy, but they're still overweight. So it's more than just that. I mean, you know, maybe he came from this perfect you know, home setting with a stay-at-home mommy and set meal times. But a lot of kids are latchkey kids. Both parents have to work. They come home, they eat whatever they want. And usually the food that's available, you know, maybe isn't the highest quality, maybe too much sugar, too much starch, whatever. But I just think that, you know, in principle, yes, kids are too soft, but I didn't like the shaming aspect because there's not a fat kid around that doesn't know they're a fat kid. You know, (laughs) the last thing they need is... I just don't think that that's the solution. Yeah, run more laps after school, and you'll suddenly be uh, this vigorous, uh, perfect uh, athletic Kennedy-like physique. I mean, it's well, not realistic. Well, it's, first I of all, <clears throat> I think that um, the—and I, I, I agree with you. I, I wouldn't talk like this because, you know, you don't want to make anybody feel bad. But I think that the the end goal of what he was trying to do, which is to adopt more stricter— physical fitness standards in schools, I think that's a positive. Uh, Would you agree with that, Adrian? No, I used to do every which way, including bribery to get out of gym. And meanwhile, now, decades later, I'm one of the only people that's still at my high school weight. All these other ones that were the, all the, that could do all the gym stuff, I hated that. No, I, I, not everybody can climb up a rope. I wasn't fat, but I just wasn't as athletically... Uh, I don't know, I just couldn't do all this stuff. And I thought it was ridiculous. We're in school to learn. I and mean, we're not there to, like, uh, run laps. I yeah, thought it was... I, I, I hear you, Adrian. Um, and look, I envy you being the, the same shape and weight that you were in high school. I certainly am not. But I, I, I don't agree. Look, I agree with you that you don't want to use language that makes people feel bad. I don't think that's that's positive for... Anybody that's dealing with something, whether it's drugs, whether it's food, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, alcohol. But I think what Kennedy was trying to do there 
get America's youth into shape because we need people to be able to fight and win wars and be able to condition to win wars, and it's just a healthier thing for them, I think that's a positive. 800-848-9222, Meyer is in New York. Hi, Meyer. Yes. Good morning. Morning. I definitely agree with J.F. Kennedy. And uh, the reason he was uh, talking in kind of a rush way, he tried to he tried to change something. So he used this language, but it's I don't think his purpose was to shape the image of the youngsters. What is that music uh, in the background, Meyer? What is it? Uh, with that music in the background, what am I listening to? Yerushalayim Shizav. It's Jerusalem what? Of gold. Jerusalem of gold. Oh, Jerusalem of gold? Yeah. Oh, one of my favorites. I love it. Thank you, Meyer. Um, w- point well taken. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your mobile, uh, with your calls in just a minute. Two open lines if you want to comment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano i'm gonna get back to your calls in just a moment a uh, speaking of health you know I, I obviously been a new yorker my whole life and i remember 20 years ago uh, i would go out to uh, bars and restaurants much more than i did much more than i do now quite frankly because you know i had the time but i would go to bars before 2003 and when i would go to bars uh, they would allow smoking and I, honestly, I wouldn't really like it at all. I despise cigarette smoke. I really don't like it. I mean, I, I almost get nauseous just smelling the cigarette smoke. I, I don't, I don't, uh, it doesn't really make me cough. I just, it, it makes me want to vomit, honestly. I really, I've never smoked a cigarette, but um, I know people were really into it. I would smoke a cigar occasionally, but you wouldn't really do that in a in a bar unless it was a specific cigar bar. But anyway, I remember when they passed the smoking ban under Mayor Bloomberg in 2003. I was vehemently against it. I'm sure there's things that I've written or said on radio or television that were you know opposed to it. And basically, what I said was that um, this is not right. 
people should have the freedom to be able to go to a bar that allows smoking. If you want to go to a bar that labels itself the smoker's bar, even though I don't like it and even though I would never want to go there, people should be able to go there. By the same token, if I want to open a smoke-free bar, I should be able to do that and let the people choose what kind of bars they want to go to. It's really kind of from a freedom perspective. You know, I have a streak of civil libertarianism in me. And they passed this ban, and I have to tell you, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved going into bar after bar, these places that I used to hate going into that uh, because I would choke on the cigarette smoke, and I was able to go in there and enjoy it. And, you know, maybe the smokers would go outside and have a cigarette and come back in. It was great, lifestyle-wise. And what I didn't consider when I was uh, advocating against this cigarette smoking ban in uh, bars 21 years ago or so, 20, 21 years ago, I didn't consider the fate of the people that work in these bars. I didn't consider the bartender that has to breathe in cigarette smoke. I didn't consider the uh, cocktail waitress that has to breathe cigarette smoke. Unlike me, who can choose what bar he wants to go to, they don't have a choice. If their workplace chooses to allow smoking, they, um, they have to sit there and stand there and enjoy all that cigarette smoke. Sometimes for six, seven, eight hours, sometimes more. And that's not good for you. And I'm sure a lot of them, and I know a lot of them, developed health issues because of it. So I, I've come to believe that my position on this was um, ill-considered. Well, as you know, I am a frequent visitor to Atlantic City. I'm going to be going down there this weekend. And one thing that I have noticed over the last couple of years is there's fewer and fewer places that you can smoke a cigar. I am a cigar smoker, and you really can't smoke indoors in Atlantic City except on the casino floor in certain designated smoking areas. And um, there's a couple, there's a handful of cigar bars left that you can still smoke in. Um, ten, uh, the uh, 10 North at the Tropicana, for instance, one or two others, very few though. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't like that, right? I mean, it's tougher and tougher. So for years, they have been trying to ban smoking entirely in casinos because for the same rationale. They said it's not right that these dealers, the casino dealers, and these waitresses should be subjected to this kind of smoking. And this kind of secondhand smoke. And I'm very conflicted about this. And this is where I want you to help me at 800-848-9222. Because on the one hand, they're right. How could you tell a um, blackjack dealer that he's got to sit around wafting smoke all day long? But on the other hand, a casino without smoking, it's almost like a church without praying. It kind of goes hand in hand. So there's this been there's been this legislation for years to prohibit smoking in casinos. And for years it was bottled up by the state senate president Steve Sweeney because he's from South Jersey and he's very close to the casino industry and they obviously didn't want it. Well Steve Sweeney was defeated for re-election in uh, about 2 years ago and they've been very very close to banning smoking in casinos and it looked like this was the year they were finally going to be able to do it. Well, 
didn't happen. Yesterday, Sean Fain, the Teamsters president, or the uh, United Auto Workers president, excuse me, Sean Fain, the international president of the United Auto Workers Union, who recently won large raises for his workers in Detroit and all the manufacturers, he's now taking aim at this law. And these New Jersey lawmakers who are delaying votes on a bill to ban smoking in Atlantic City's casinos. So the head of this union represents workers at three casinos, and he's urging legislators to move the bill forward in a scheduled hearing. So it's going to be very interesting to see where this goes. This guy, Sean Fain, is not playing around. This guy, Sean Fain, gets stuff done, unlike a lot of labor leaders. So I think smoking may, I never thought I'd say it, but smoking may finally come to an end in Atlantic City casinos. And I'm trying to wrestle with this, right? Because on the one hand, of course it should. Why should a Baccarat dealer have to deal with my secondhand cigar smoke if they don't want to smoke it? On the other hand, I really, a key part of the Atlantic City experience for me and you know we're going to do a little bit of this on New Year's Eve, even all likelihood, is going into a casino and being able to smoke a cigar or you know sometimes a pipe while I'll play baccarat or um, or craps or something along those lines. I'm curious what your thoughts are. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. It seems like it's a matter of time before this is done. Uh, now, State Senator Vincent Palestina, he's a Republican, represents the area. He um, is apparently working on a compromise for this casino smoking ban bill. We'll see where that goes. And a recent poll shows that New Jerseyans and Philadelphians are actually more likely to visit Atlantic City casinos if smoking is banned. It's kind of like what I described in going through this in New York. I ended up going to bars more because you could go to all these great bars that didn't have smoking. Apparently, there's folks in Philadelphia and elsewhere that would end up going to Atlantic City casinos if smoking wasn't permitted. Curious what you think. If this would change your view of going to these um, these places and whether smoking should indeed be, you know, prohibited totally. Uh, all right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Dave. What's on your mind, Dave? Teddy Roosevelt's signature was on a document that my family had, and another document my mother showed me before she passed away was Van Loon. I am one of the first families in the city of New York. I have a bit more to tell you. Teddy Roosevelt... I agree with you. He was one of the greatest, or the greatest president we ever had. I think that all the parks he opened up and bringing Boy Scouts from England to the United States was the best thing that any person could do to teach men and boys how to survive in the wilderness and uh, stressed conditions. I was for a short time a Boy Scout explorer. It didn't last long. I was really too old for it, but. I believe that people like Teddy Roosevelt we need today, more so than ever. 
What about the the language, Dave? You heard Adrian say that, look, every child that's overweight knows they're overweight. They don't need some politician lecturing them about how overweight they were. What about that? I believe the state of mind of people who are overweight barely really accept it because they don't realize that you're going to have to run and in an emergency you can't make it because somebody who is better fit than they are will outrun them. Yeah. You can have a heart attack, you can have obesity, you can also have, uh, I'm thinking of a, a woman uh, in the entertainment industry, she lost her legs before she died because she was overweight. They laugh and they make us enjoy our lives, but in themselves, I think they cry silently. All right, thank you, Dave. 800-848-9222. Novi is in Tribeca. Hello, Novi. Yeah, as far as physical, that's also mental. I mean, my brother, uh, we were put in an orphanage, and he had the mumps on the way. And he's like one years old, not even, and he was so close to his mom, who the last thing he saw was uh, an ambulance. And because he cried so loud, they were harsh with him, and he came out with Tourette. And uh, it was a physical thing where he became so strong physically, mentally, that he actually overcame the Tourette that developed from that experience. Wow. Um, I, yes. And I, uh, myself, I was so uh, loved because I'm, I was a year younger than him. Um, I, I said he was one. He was closer to two. I, I was six, uh, like three months old. And for six months, we stayed in this orphanage. And I had the love of a nun who was 22 years old. And this is all documented. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank, that- thank you, Frank. I mean, we let Frank sneak in under a different name, but. You know, there's only so much we could take. Harvey's calling from uh, upstate New York. Hello, Harvey. Hello, Frank. Uh, great show. I appreciate you doing the work you do, put into it. Thank you. But anyway, uh, I have uh, uh, overweight people are selfish because they only think of themselves, not their family. They're going to die younger and... Uh, Leave your family without right. them. Well, well, Harvey, I mean, think of a think of a nine year old, right? Uh, a nine year old, th- their food intake is largely being controlled by their parents or their school administrators. Is it really fair right. to call a nine year old that's overweight selfish? Of course not. But uh, the fact is that overweight children uh, will have a great uh, amount of. Uh, uh, overweight parents. You always see an overweight child, and the mother or father would be overweight. Yeah, and I get. And thanks for the call, Harvey. I guess that's kind of what I'm starting. To, I'm trying to talk about here, right? First of all, it's not always the case because the um, number of overweight children is growing, so it had to start somewhere. Second of all. Uh, I think there are a variety of factors, and I don't think it's as simple as um, you're making it sound. I think part of it is these junk food ads that are populating children's programming. I think part of it is what's in the food. I think, And I think a part of it is, to what President Kennedy is saying, was the lack of physical fitness and the, lick, the lack of rigor, the lack of the strenuous life that we're seeing in schools. There's not an appropriate amount of uh, physical activity 
There's not an appropriate amount of uh, calisthenics and things like that. I don't think there's anything contradictory about saying you shouldn't make people feel bad for being overweight and at the same time encouraging them to be healthier. Right? So, you know, I reached out to a woman today. I'm hoping to get her on the show next week. Her name is Marion Nestle. And she is the authority on big food. The things that big food have done are similar to what big tobacco has done in terms of paying off regulators, in terms of skirting regulations, in terms of whatever it takes to get their product into the hands or mouths of children. They've done it. And I'm really hoping we can do that uh, interview with her next week. We'll see. All right. 800-848-9222. I'm going to continue with your phone calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even the mouse. Suddenly I heard a strange noise down below. So in my flannel pajamas, I went tippy-toe. I could see your sight from the spot where I stood, so I slid down the banister just as fast as I could. All I want for Christmas is my two front tips. My two front tips. See my two front tips. Gee, if I could only have my two front tips, then I could. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, five minutes until the top of the hour. Hey, I wanted to mention. That um, my friend and uh, colleague Joe Piscopo, who a lot of you know as a uh, legendary entertainer, his um, mom Edith, who I had have the have had the privilege of meeting many times, and uh, who uh, I have had the privilege of speaking to many times when I was uh, when I was Joe's producer, she has uh, passed away, I believe, at the age of ninety eight or ninety nine. Now I have to tell you. Now, you've heard Joe talk about his mom. He never gave her age because she didn't like her age mentioned on the radio either. But I don't know of someone that could be prouder of a parent than he was of Edith. And that was only exceeded by how proud she was of all three of her children, her sons, Joe and Richie and uh, their sister, Carol. And uh, she was really a great lady. And I, I, I probably saw her last maybe about five or six years ago. She was still driving around all over New Jersey. She would re- she was incredibly independent, incredibly sharp until the end, not only incredibly mentally sharp, but physically sharp as well. At 98 or 99, she would still make these massive meals. You know, for Thanksgiving, like a lot of Italian uh, households, the turkey was almost an afterthought. And, you know, she would put all this effort into the lasagna and the sides and everything else. And uh, Joe got such a kick out of spending time with his mom. And it really meant so much to him. And the last thing I'll say, and, you know, Joe, 
is a close friend and I worked closely with him for a long time. And maybe I shouldn't share this, but I think it says so much about his relationship with her. No secret, Joe has been divorced a couple of times and he's had difficult relationships with women over the years. That's public record, it's documented. And I remember listening, this is when his mother was 94, 95 maybe. He's having a phone conversation with his mom and he's talking about how he's going to have the kids for the weekend and he wanted to make sure to come down and see her because it was so important to him to have them be around a strong woman and a woman that was the personification of a role model because he didn't feel like that they were getting that from some of the other women in their lives. And I just never met a person that had more reverence for his mother than Joe Piscopo. And you could e- it was easy to understand why. She was smart. She had a great sense of humor. She was a great cook and incredibly sharp and incredibly strong until the very end. So Edith Piscopo, uh, glad you're in heaven reunited with your husband. And for Joe, who I know how close he was with his mom, and to both of his siblings, I'm uh, very sorry. Hey, uh, Tony has walked in here. Our local board operator learned something about you, which I did not know. You're a smoker. Yes, but um, I'll cut down. But what you were saying earlier... You know, I have respect for people who don't smoke, you know, and there needs to be a section. You know, you can't ban people from smoking cigarettes. It's it's a bad habit that I picked up at the age of 16. It is what it is. I've always respected people like yourself. If you don't if if you don't smoke, I'm not going to smoke around you, especially when you're eating. You know, because that's that's rude. So there needs to be you know, you really can't ban it like like people want it want it to ban because there's a lot of us out here that that have that bad habit. Do you go to casinos? Yes, I do. What, do you think it should be permitted in casinos? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's been like that for years. Right. I mean, and you, you got all the people, you know, that's, that's still smoking cigarettes. You know, it's, it's a bad habit. And, you know, you know if, if you cut that down, it's going to cut down the revenue. Yeah. That, well, if it doesn't make any dollars, it doesn't make any sense. It, we'll see what happens. Thank you, uh, Tony. Maybe I'll see you in Atlantic City this weekend. I'm not sure if you're off this weekend. We can hang out a bit. That'll be fun. All right. Um We're going to continue with this. If you want to email me, you certainly can as well with your thoughts. Meantime, keep asking questions.